Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with Ami Tucker. That's me, guys. So as you guys know by now, or at least I hope you know by now, I'm a podcaster. And today I get to talk to my guest about the podcast industry, the future of audio, and where he sees it all going. I especially ask him what voices, if any, <clears throat> hint, hint, are lacking in the podcast industry. And um, I did comb my hair for him today, so hopefully that helped. Pat Shaw is head of content acquisition at Audible, owned by a little-known company called Amazon. And we talk about his interesting professional journey, how we both survived relationships through the craziness of business school, and how he may be the first guest that would be capable of beating me in a dance-off, which is shocking, I know. Let's see if it happens. So guys, please enjoy my interview with Pat Shaw. So Pat, welcome. I'm so glad we could chat. Um, first, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Uh, I was born in St. Louis. Um, okay. You know, the 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 two, you know, one of two of uh, immigrant parents, uh, I think like everyone else. And um, I have an older brother who uh, lives in Jersey now. And uh, both of us were born in St. Louis. So typical South Asian household, mom and dad strict and no dating anyone. And you must be a doctor, lawyer, engineer kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess to, to some degree, my, my, my parents are pretty progressive. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think, as with any other South Asian or Asian family, for that matter, you know, education is sort of, you know, uh, high priority. Uh, my parents were very good to um, allow us to roam and kind of develop our own interest and, and that type of thing. So they constantly ex- sort of expressed uh, the importance of getting a good education and taking our studies seriously. You know, my dad had a whiteboard in my bedroom and we'd walk through math equations, you know, uh, together in the evenings. Uh, which I hated at the time and 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 have a sort of a, a fond appreciation for now. Um, uh, but yeah, like that's the, you know, I think a kind of a standard upbringing. We we're a middle-class family. We grew up in St. Louis in a ranch house and uh, my dad's an engineer. My mom's a homemaker. And, um, you know, they, 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 like every other Indian parent, I think, um, you know, do, did everything for us, right. Uh, whether it be their social lives or, getting us out to, you know, T-ball practice and, uh, and, and doing those things to try and help us assimilate into uh, American life as much as, uh, as much as we could be grounded in our sort of Indian life uh, with our local families. Okay, first of all, the whiteboard <laughs> is amazing because we had one too. And I, I still have nightmares at night about that yeah. damn whiteboard. I was so bad at math. And for some reason, I graduated with economics degrees. I have no idea what's happening in my life. So bad at math. And I mean, it was my dad every night saying, you got, you got to make this happen. I'm like, I don't like numbers. Yeah, and he's I just like, don't get it. Yeah. You're, he's like, you're Indian. <laughs> kind of have to. And then I went to law school, so it all worked out. Right, um, right. And yeah, like, like you said, you know, I was telling, talking to my husband about this. I'm like, our parents took us everywhere. I, I never had a babysitter. Mm-hmm. Did you? Nope. Yeah. Like never. I was with them. I mean, they weren't, again, going out and partying and downing bottles of wine, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, I feel like I never had a nanny. They, they, We were everywhere with them. And so I do give them props for that. It's pretty amazing. So then did you know what you wanted to do growing up? Were you trying to 
were you figuring it out or did you have an idea? Um, I, you know, my, my parents had ideas, right. Um, but, but it didn't really sort of, I kind of, and I kind of went with it for a little while, you know, when I was 12 or so, we moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And, um, when I got to high school, there was a, a local magnet school that did like a medical magnet, you know, kind of your first year. They had, they also did business and law, but I, I kind of signed up for the medical magnet and thinking that like, maybe I'll be on the doctor track and, you know, all, all of that, like very kind of. That's weird. That never yeah. happens to Indian people. <laughs> yeah. But pretty, pretty typical. Um, and then I just realized like that, that wasn't really like my thing. And, and I'm so happy by the way, that I got to do that in my first year of high school and not like my first year of medical school, you know, and, 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 and I have a lot of doctor friends who, you know, who have gone, have done that journey. Some of them really enjoy the profession. Some, you know, obviously don't. And, um, but they're, they're sort of course committed at that point, you know, and it's really hard to sort of uh, change paths. And so I, I was fortunate to get a little bit of experience early on, uh, realized it was not my calling. And then I switched over to the, to the business magnet uh, at that same, at that same high school um, and really kind of like, it sort of opened my eyes up to the possibilities and I'm, I'm more of an entrepreneurial type, you know, anyway. And so um, I knew I wanted to work in business. And then the question is, what do I do? Like it's such a large profession and, and area of work. Um, and so I basically, you know, enrolled in college and, uh, and, 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 and found my way, you know, to wall street uh, after graduation. And so right. uh, continued my journey there. That's uh, this high school needs to be everywhere. That sounds amazing because I didn't. I, I just figured out what I wanted to do last year, and I'm 40, and so that that worked out. Um, and then really quickly, I always ask all of my South Asians Asian guests this: How did your parents view dating and relationships growing up? Were you allowed to date? If so, were you allowed to date outside the brown people? Like, how did it work? Yeah, um, you know, my my parents are, are pretty open. I mean, look, they obviously have preferences and 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 that type of thing. Um, but I think they were, you know, I think my parents were just happy that, like, I was happy and that I was, you know, and that we were meeting people and, and we were doing all the things. And so I dated, you know, mainly in Kentucky, I, I you know, you know, I, I was sort of mainly dated, um, you know, more Caucasian, you know, American women, uh, women than, uh, than, than, than Indian. But um, and I brought, you know, a few of them home and they met my parents and, you know, and, and they were my, my parents are very open and loving and, and, and all that. And, and I think they um, we're just happy that I was happy. And then, you know, and it's funny enough, like later in life, you know, I moved to New York city, I, I was able to meet Indian women and, and, um, and all that. And, 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 and sure enough, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to marry one. So it, but it, it's all kind of, kind of came full circle, but it didn't, uh, it wasn't part of a plan, you know, it was, it wasn't, yeah. uh, it wasn't something that I, 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 I didn't think I, 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 I always thought it would be important because there's always just a shorthand when you marry somebody, you know, within, you know, your, your tribe, as they say. Um, yeah. But, uh, but it wasn't sort of the necessary, you know, uh, thing. And, and I, w- and I would have been perfectly fine uh, if it did not work out that way. And, and I ended up with someone else, but, but I'm very happy that I, I did find somebody um, uh, from my tribe and, and we could build a life together. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, my parents were like, this is your list of people that you are allowed to marry. And it was like Brown <laughs> Hindu brown Punjabi kind of him. I mean, like it was pretty much just Indians. And so I, I, it was it nailed in my head up until I got to law school. And then I was like, Oh my God, 
there's other people around that I could date. So I definitely got to experience that. And and thir- I really did think I would marry outside this, the South Asian tribe. Um, and then the parent's voice came back in my head dear, in my upper 20s. And I ended oh, up marrying... Yeah, I ended up marrying a Hindu Brahmin kid who, you know, I I like him. It worked out. So it's fine. Who also went to Ivy League school. So I was like, bam, bam, bam. Uh, And I win. I totally beat my brother out. Um, But yeah, I it's nice. It is nice to to be able to relate in many ways, you know. Yeah. Um, And then University of Kentucky. How was that experience? Uh, UK was amazing. Um, you know, it's a it, it's a, obviously one of the land grant universities in the country. Um, it's it, it's one of the two, uh, two one of the two larger universities in Kentucky. University of Louisville being the other, and um, it's a giant sports school. So you know, U- UK basketball. Um, you know, setting aside this year's tournament, uh, uh, you know, uh, history. But you know, in history, uh, over time, it's been one of the dominant schools in the SEC and, and in the, in nationwide. And I was fortunate enough to sit through two national championships uh, with Tubby Smith and, and Ricky and Rick Petito, and and really just you know had really just an amazing time. Learned uh, learned a lot by myself, um, you know, during those four years. I think which is really one of the benefits of going to school um, right. and living on campus and doing all that. And um, and then really was part of that like career exploration. You know, like what do I want to do when I grow up and when, you know, when the gravy train of mom and dad paying for school is over, you know, and trying to figure out that journey. <laughs> yeah. My mom was like, you still owe us for law school. You know that, right? And I'm like, I'm podcasting now. I'll get you the money in like a hundred years. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. it's, all, it's, all, it's all good. Well, I went to UT Austin. So we oh, are right definitely on. a sports school as well. But I feel like I missed out. I wasn't paying. I didn't realize how good we were. At, at sports, I kind of missed out on the whole process. And now as alumni, and now I'm enjoying it more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. But I feel like I didn't go to enough games. I didn't experience it enough. Do you, do you go to busy. games now? I mean, whenever I, I've gone to, I've gone to way more games after I graduated right, than right. I have, but I haven't lived in Texas since 2000, since after Enron. I worked at Enron after UT. Oh, okay. Um, shredded some papers. It's totally fine. <laughs> you know, standard. Uh, yeah, oh, standard stuff. I was like, okay, this is what you're paying me for. Great. Um, and then, and then I left after that. So I haven't gone back in a while. But I now I have a. I just I feel more connected to the schools and the sport, especially when you're married to someone who's obsessed with their own schools. And so you're like, no, this is not going to happen. And I'm from Houston, and he won't let me watch the Astros anymore. And so it's a, it's a little heartbreaking. He's like, nope, it's not happening. It's, it's out. Um, so between University of Kentucky and Northwestern, did you work at all? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I left uh, University of Kentucky in 98. I'm kind of dating myself, but I, I, I started my career on Wall Street, was an you know, investment banking analyst, um, okay. doing the 100 hour a week thing for, you know, for two years. Um, and, you know, and it got to the end of it and had the option to continue and get sort of direct promoted to an associate. Um, I elected not to because, um, I was kind of done with it. You know, I wanted to really, I saw the financing side. I saw the advisory side. I wanted to actually experience the operating side uh, a little bit. And so I moved to San Francisco uh, without a job and, uh, and just kind of found something um, with a, with a, with a startup and my timing couldn't have been worse. I mean, I moved out in March of 2000, which if you remember um, was the end of that first cycle of the internet. 
And um, that's when and, I was shredding papers at Enron. Yeah, uh, so exactly. That's, that's all yeah. I know. That's all yeah. I remember from that time. So, so yes. hey, at least you had a job, right? So I, <laughs> <laughs> I for, for, a, for a solid 14 months, it was awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I was shredding my savings. You know, that's what I was shredding. But yeah, but I landed a job and, you know, it was kind of a, a financed role. And uh, I ended up working for there for a little while. But the company didn't end up uh, being successful. It ran out of money. Okay. Uh, along the way. And then I joined a private equity firm in, in, in Seattle um, that was run by a guy named Paul Allen, who's the co-founder of Microsoft. And so um, I spent two years working on his private equity team, helping him restructure one of his largest investments, um, a company called Charter Communications. Um, uh, if you know, it, it's a cable company. It used to be. And, um, and, and, and did that for two years and then moved to New York um, and, and entered uh, Wall Street Life again um, yeah, for, for a brief period of time and then end up joining another startup. And so I had already had a, a, a pretty good, um, I'm saying pretty good career, but it was, it was sort of littered with a lot of, a lot of failures along the way. And, um, and, and in 2012, I had the opportunity to go back to school, uh, pursue my MBA. And so went to Northwestern, um, at, at that time and, and did kind of the work and study thing at the same time. So you were at Northwestern 2002, you said? Uh, 12. 12, 12, 12, sorry, sorry, 12, 12 yeah. to 14. Okay, I, I was seeing if we overlapped at all, but I was there 03 to 06 for law okay. school. Um, love Chicago. Yeah, amazing. I actually went to law school just to move to Chicago. That was my <laughs> reason. And to avoid math, I was like, well, my parents were like, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? And I was like, well, I got a C in organic chemistry. So that worked out. And so I ended up going to yeah law school in DePaul, um, Chicago. Where, where did you live in Chicago? Amazing. So uh, so I did the fly-in from New York. And so um, okay. part, of the, you know, part of the weekend program at Kellogg. And got so it. I lived in New York. Um, I actually, and funny enough, I started uh, Kellogg three days after I got married. And uh, ah, that was- She must was, have loved that. Yeah, that was pretty intense. Um, yeah. Was, you know, intense being married in your first year and intense Very. starting school and and then commuting on top of it, you know, every other weekend. So it was um, it was, you know, it was definitely a learning experience for both of us. But uh, she knew what she was signing up for. So that so that was OK. And, uh, and we survived it, which was which is even better. Um, but I loved it. I So I, so I basically so Northwestern sets up a, a, like a weekend dorm situation for, for okay. folks and um and so it's kind of a live in, you know, uh, uh, live in and study type of an arrangement for the weekend. And so we would just do that. And, you know, it's great because, you know, at, at, at that point, I was 36. Um, at 36, getting to meet, you know, 100 or 200 new people um, in your adult life is such a it's such a treasure, such a rarity right. um, that, that really just enjoyed it. And, 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 and you get the frequency of meeting every, you know, uh, every, every, every other week or so. And so, right. uh, so I, I built some really great friendships along the way um, uh, that that remain today, you know, and it's it's yeah. been a, a great experience. Well, I'm going to have drinks with your wife because I had to survive my husband's business school. We weren't married or engaged yet. We were we had started Ooh. dating. It had been a year, and he got he went to HBS, uh-huh. and he basically told me he's like, "Look, I'm going to ignore you for two years. Do you want to do this?" And I'm like. I'm not sure why I said yes. I think I was just, I have no idea. I was in New York. He was in Boston. He lived and breathed like HBS life. Yeah. I'm sure you know, you've, you've been through it. It was like, every time I went there, it was like going back to high school. Oh, I was yeah. like, who, who are you people? Like, how yeah. are you guys the smartest people ever? Like, I don't understand <laughs> this process. Um, <laughs> after the first year, I was like, all right, dude. 
dude, I'm tired. I'm tired of the bus. Like yeah. I'm done. <laughs> right, good. Let me know when you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so then he got a ring and I was like, Shanti, all right, let's move on. Um, but, but well, I do. Well, let, me ask, t- let me ask you though. Do, do you remember yeah. how many spider bowls did you kill uh, in your weekend trips to Boston? The blacking out, I mean, thank God I was in my 20s because I just, I don't understand how I'm standing. Like, that place was just amazing nonsense. Yeah. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad. We had both turned 30 by the end of it and I could feel my bones just like disintegrating. Yeah. yeah. And, and then after that. Yeah. Right, ha- right after he graduated, actually, Pat, he, he was so like off balance in life. He was like, <laughs> I'm going to go. To a two week Vipassana retreat and oh. just not not talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that and, I think that's what I think that's what you call withdrawal. You know, yeah. I, I think that's what I think your husband was reacting to the lack of alcohol and going through withdrawal. <laughs> he was basically like a drug rehabilitation tr- <laughs> tr- like center, but he just called it Vipassana. Right. And I, I'm pretty sure it was like 10 of them that went and they were probably all just sitting there outside near trees, sweating out alcohol for like two weeks. And I was like, <laughs> go ahead, my friend. It's fine. <laughs> so, so, yeah, business school is. But you know what? And I'm sure the same as you. I see the network and, and the benefit from business. I mean, of course you knew it, but you really see it now, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the ability to like really understand uh, business problems, you know, like there's nothing really new under the sun, um, right. there's different possible creative solutions. And so business school gives you that grounding and that training. And, and then obviously the connectivity to uh, other like-minded folks uh, that, you know, that, that does actually um, help each other out or try to, you know, tries to help each other out. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly benefited from it. I'm sure he has too. And, and, and others yeah. along, you know, along the way. That's great. Yeah, it was, it was worth it. I was like, okay, finally, I think he paid more money on the trips, like whatever <laughs> trips they went on. I was like, yeah. how, how are you on another, how are you in Bulgaria right now? Like, I don't even understand what's happening to your life, but well, these are important all, all learning. Up, these are important learning. Uh, <laughs> trips. You know, I mean, I think you should cut a little bit of slack, you know, Bulgaria, you know, a lot to learn in Bulgaria. Uh, yeah, I was like, um, this may not work out for us. Thanks. <laughs> he called me when he got there, by the way. It wasn't right. even when he left. Yeah, it was just when he, when he got there. I was like, huh, interesting. Like, Anyways, it. we you guys should have drinks one day. Yeah, Love it. Can, Sounds like a great just, guy. You can just, yeah, he's, he is awesome. Um, okay, so investment banking. So you did the good finance, good Indian boy finance thing. Yeah. And then you were founder and CEO of your own marketing and advertising firm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, pr- prior to that, so that company was called Search Squad. Prior to that, yeah, um, I had I had left banking and um, I, I had joined a a, um, a small merchant banking firm called Allen and Company in New York that did a lot of media entertainment um, investing. And so that was kind of my bridge from charter at at Paul Allen's shop, which was the cable business, which is the entertainment business. Um, joined Allen and Company um, essentially to kind of like hang my hat there to kind of learn what I want to do next. And uh, while I was there, um, I, w- uh, I led sort of an investment in a, in a small music startup called Music Gremlin. Um, and I think we ended up raising something like 12 or $13 million over the course of a few years and then and sold the company uh, right before the financial crisis. Um, and so if nice. you uh, if you go to like the Wayback Machine on the internet and you type in Music Gremlin, you'll see uh, a review from Walt Mossberg in the Wall Street Journal and, and and a bunch of other things that, you know, that we did along the way. And, um, and it was just a, you know, this was all predating the iPhone or right around the iPhone. And so uh, the world at the time, if you wanted to get digital music was, 
you went to Best Buy or a, a store like that, you you bought a uh, an MP3 player, which is sort of just like a hard drive, essentially. And right. and then you would come home and you would plug it into your PC and then you would drag and drop files and you would do all this kind of stuff. And and that feels also very antiquated now when everything yeah. is just an app and you have Spotify and, and all that. And um, so Music Gremlin was saying, hey, why don't we just create a direct device delivery mechanism? So a Wi-Fi enabled MP3 player, you could do the $10 streaming thing. You could do the 99 cent download thing. And, um, and so we built it ourselves, went to you know, China, you know, manufactured this device, and then sold it out uh, in retail at Amazon and other places. And so um, it, and, 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 and th- thankfully, uh, it, it, a strategic conversation turned into an M&A conversation um, because this was a capital intensive business, you know, going right. to China and manufacturing devices, like we need to right. get raise a lot of money. And the world was turning very quickly, Lehman Brothers and, and all that. And so we were able to get out, essentially, you know, sell the company and, um, and, and move on with our ways. But what we learned coming out of that experience was when the company shifted to a, a B2C model and we had to go and get people to buy devices, um, this was the, sort of the beginning of the, of the Internet age when it came to advertising, Google AdWords, you know, Facebook advertising, et cetera. And, and so I built, a, I built a company based on that same playbook uh, that we learned at Music Gremlin. And, um, and, and, and essentially, and, and augmented with other things that I had learned along the way. And I sort of said, like, listen, why don't we go help venture backed engineers who had great product ideas and who knew nothing about advertising and performance marketing to really sort of avail themselves of these new technologies and help them really bootstrap, you know, their companies. And so um, I ended up uh, forming a little bit of a business. It's kind of, you know, a solo shop, but I had a group of folks in India who were helping me, um, you know, with the business and, and, and that's what we did. We just helped uh, a bunch of uh, aspiring, um, you know, uh, budding Elon Musk out there in the world, um, getting their businesses off the ground and, and did that for a year or two and then sold that company and, and joined EMI Music afterwards. And so went back into the music industry and, uh, and have been in and have basically been in that space ever since. Uh, a bunch of Elon Musk sounds a little bit like awesome slash scary. So. <laughs> yeah. So did you enjoy starting your own company and being an entrepreneur and starting from the ground up? And, or did you, were after you, after you sold the company, were you like, okay, I, I'm done with this, want to move into something, into a bigger corporation? Yeah. I, you know, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. Um, right. You know, and I think that like, if you have that like burning itch and desire to go build a new product or service and, and, and try and bring that into the world, that I would encourage people to do so. But if you're on this, if you're on the fence, you know, should I, or shouldn't I, you probably shouldn't do it. You know, it's, it's just too hard. And because everything is, is you, there is no company. It's you um, right. and, until, you know, you're up and going and you have product market fit and you have, you can raise some capital um, and build out your team. And so um, if, if the desire is really high enough and you're willing to sort of make it an emergency and, and 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 commit twenty four seven to it. Then uh, I would say it's an incredibly rewarding experience, both personally and professionally. Um, it does come with the downsides. Uh, yes, mental, I'm mental sure. Health being one. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. But but I think it is. I think it is um, for for the for the creator. And 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 I mean by that a person who has a creative view on something that they want to bring into the world it is probably the best vehicle in which to bring that about. And, okay. um, and, and especially if the idea is big enough that you can sort of build your community of people around you, whether it be capital yeah. or other employees or, or that type of thing. 
So. And I'm not sure if this is the right question to ask. I'm just wondering for myself because I feel like I'm starting again at 40. But do you feel like startups and entrepreneurship can be sometimes more of a, a young man's game? Uh, you know, it's a great question. I, you know, w- when you're young, you have energy and, <laughs> yes. and, and and you're naive and you don't have a mortgage. Right. And so you don't kind of you don't really know fear. Right. Yeah. Like you don't really. Right. And if you fail, you move into your brother's you know, uh, uh, you know, kitchen like I did. So, um, <laughs> and so you, and you do what you can do, but it's the main yeah, so, room anyways, where else would you want to be? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, there's, so there's definitely some advantages, um, of, of doing that sort of that, that beginner's mind attitude, the energy, you know, the, the ability to kind of, uh, bring all your friends into it to, to, you know, to help, uh, make something happen. I think that's all positive, uh, but I will say, uh, launching a business later in life, uh, 40 plus, um, I think is a huge advantage. A, you yeah. have these networks, you have these experiences, right. you have some financial capital, you have, you know, uh, the ability to raise um, and, and get, you know, get your projects off the ground. In fact, I think I just saw a stat recently where it was like the average age of, a, of an entrepreneur, venture funded now, um, in, in this last, you know, last couple of years is something like 35 or 37, you know, it's, it's, right. a, it's a bigger number. Like everybody thinks of, you know, the 22 year old whiz kid out of Stanford, but, and, and that does happen, but there's a lot of like people who are mid career or kind of, you know, more senior who've said, I've been in this business now for 20 years. I know how it works and how it goes. And here's a better play. Um, right. you know, oftentimes leveraging new technologies or, um, um, or, or, or new products in which to reinvent their business. And so, right. um, so I'm all for it. I, th- I, I think it all comes down to that burning desire and, and whether or not you have it or not. And if you do, you know, go for it. I think it's great. Yeah. It's also because Gen X is the best generation. So, 100%. You know, yeah, exactly. yeah. Those millennials and then after millennials. I don't even know what's after millennials. I've yeah. lost track. I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just trying to figure out what my kids are. Um, at this point, you moved to LA, I know, for Spotify, correct? Uh, for Universal Music Group. For Universal so, Music Group. So you were yeah. on the East Coast and then you moved to LA. So how was the transition to the West Coast and LA? Yeah. Did, did yeah. we hate it? Did we love it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 2012 to 24 was, uh, or uh, 2014, 2012 to 2014 was business school. And um, after business school, uh, Universal Music in the meantime had bought EMI Music um, in, in the background. And so when Univer- when I completed my studies, Universal said, hey, um, would you be interested in joining our team out in LA. And, uh, so we had, you know, we, we talked it over, you know, with, with the wife and the family. And, um, I did sort of bamboozle her a little bit because I took her out to Santa Monica early on and was like, Hey, look, come check it out. Let's go take a vacation, you know, come with me in my interview. And then we immediately went to Malibu. We had amazing amounts of drinks and, you know, all that. And so then we got back to New York and, um, and it was, you know, hot you know, and, and, <laughs> and like humid and, and all that. And I said, well, what, you know, this, this opportunity, you got about. lucky, you Pat, you got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my wife still holds that against me, but, um, but, but we ended up moving. Well, I'm going to call her. I'm gonna yeah. Call yeah. 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 You should yes. call her. You should. I think yes. I have a feeling you two will have a lot to talk about, but, uh, yes. but we moved out in 2014, the summer of 2014, uh, for the universal gig. And, okay. um, and, and I was there for like a year and a half, I think maybe, and then uh, Spotify called, and 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 then I and I joined Spotify in LA. So you were head of original content licensing for Spotify, and then head of music strategy and licensing at Twitch. Yeah. So 
those two roles, if you had to like summarize or, or have one takeaway for each of those roles, what would that be? Like, what was the biggest lesson you learned or maybe your favorite part about those roles? Yeah, I mean, both roles were about leveraging what we knew about the music business to create better outcomes for artists. And, okay. and, and at Spotify, it was launching videos. Um, if you go to Spotify today and you go to watch Rap Caviar, you'll see this interstitials between audio and, and video. And um, that was, uh, you know, my remit along with a, a very large production team internally. And uh, we built that uh, with, with support with our product folks in, in, in Stockholm. And, and so, you know, everything I've done along the way has always been around helping creators realize uh, their full value by connecting them to audiences, driving monetization, and helping with search and discovery. And, um, and so that was the work at, at, at Spotify. And, and you know, we, did, we led the podcast team. We did the video and the music video stuff. And now that's gone on to like even greater heights with, you know, the Joe Rogan acquisition and all of the other studios that the company has bought. And so, um, you know, I, I and, and I and I played a small part in all that. I don't want it to, you know, to overrepresent, but I did I did my part to help it come about. And um, and, and I think that's now created a huge opportunity for people like you and others who want to reach, you know, a, a large global audience. And so I'm happy about that. And then, you know, along the way. Um, I, I kind of pushed that uh, boulder as far as I could at Spotify. Uh, Twitch reached out and said, you know, how cool would it be if you were the first music employee at YouTube back in the day, you know? And uh, and Twitch was a platform that was growing, had it built its business in the gaming space and in esports. And they were starting to think about what could it look like for artists to be successful on that platform. And so I came to, and I joined a strategy in licensing to really bring that interface for the music industry from a rights perspective, from an artist relations perspective, et cetera, to say, you know, why would artists come and do this? And by the way, how do the labels think about it and how the publishers think about it? And, um, and, and they're now on a journey, you know, to really pioneer a, um, a new way for artists to interact with their fans. You know, today you can go to a live show, you can listen to their streams on Spotify or, or other services. Um, but what is the one-to-one -one experience look like um, online in this world, you know, COVID and, and otherwise? And um, Twitch gives you an opportunity to connect with your audience and your fans um, and, and in a way that's more meaningful than others. And so I think it'll be a longer-term play for the right group of artists, not for everybody, but for the right, right group of artists, they'll come to Twitch and interact with their fans and, and, and build uh, a monetization vehicle um, on, on Twitch through subscriptions. Um, and so, so just the same as what Patreon has done or Substack, Substack has done for journalism um, and for artists, um, I think Twitch can play that same role over time. And right. I'm excited to see how it just, you know, no, nothing ever is born uh, without pain and, 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 and they'll go through their, their trying times as well. But they're on, they're on a really exciting journey, I think. That's amazing. So I'm going to basically from all that. I'm going to say that you helped launch Joe Rogan. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just do fake news and, and, and say that. Um, that would definitely be fake news, but yeah. For everyone listening and that for people that are, you know, wanting to understand your professional journey, you know, you went from investment banking to founding your own company to Spotify, Twitch. Do you think you made these decisions based on like right time, right place? Was it kind of a gut decision? Was it just you had you felt like you were done with those positions. It was time to start on something new or was it like people reach, like, was it a combination of a bunch of things? Like how did you know what was the right path? 
Yeah. Not right path, but right path for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, you know, I'm in my mid forties. I'm still trying to figure out my right path uh, to, to be honest. But, um, but what I would say is along the way, it was a combination of opportunity, insight, and, uh, and the desire to continue to learn and, and do something different. And so I, I always sort of say that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really interested in the early stages of things, the zero to one process, um, as opposed to the 10 to a hundred or one, one to a hundred. Um, and the reason is because that's the kind of the messy early stages of things where you're trying to figure out what, what are we, what, what off, what value do we offer, you know, to others and how can they benefit if they decide to, uh, to join us. And, um, I find that process of creation more interesting than, than anything else. And so, um, I've, that sort of guided a lot of my decisions. Um, I may also have ADD a little bit, you know, and just, <laughs> and just like taking on different types of projects, uh, you know, along the way, but I, yeah. you know, this idea of like planning your career and, and all that kind of stuff, like you might have a sort of a general direction. Um, but I think oftentimes opportunities will find you and, and right. your interests will, will change over time. And the way I sort of liken it is, you know, it's like, it's like saying to somebody, oh, you're probably going to marry the first person you meet. And, um, and that's not realistic. I mean, although that does happen, but it's not, it's not, it's not realistic for the, for the ordinary person. What ends up happening is that you end up meeting a lot of different people along the way. And you learn a lot about yourself as much as you do about what you want in a relationship. And that then carries you forward to the next thing. And I think a job is the same way, you know, and your careers are the same way. You think you think, you think you want to work in you want to go to medical school, you think you want to go work on Wall Street, you think you want to go do, you know, such and such things. And, um, and, and ultimately, what it's what ends up happening is, is that you kind of find your way if you or if you're honest with yourself, and you listen to the things that um, really get you excited in the morning, the things that like you feel like you have a lot of a lot of energy toward. Um, and, 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 and just chase the energy. Like that's, right. that would be that would be my recommendation to others. That's the title of the podcast, Chase Energy. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Well, look, as someone who worked at Enron and then was a backup Bollywood dancer in India for six months, wow. I can tell you I have ADD to the max and have <laughs> tried everything. So I completely understand what you're saying. But yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Chase Energy, what motivates you in the morning? Because yeah, life is passing us by super fast. And so it's, it's just not worth it. It's accelerating. It yeah. It's accelerating. Yeah. <laughs> So you are now head of content acquisition and development at Audible, uh, which sounds just awesome and fancy. So can you just quickly tell everyone what does that role entail? Yeah, sure. So uh, my job is, I have one of the best jobs in the world. I, I, get, a, I get a chance to meet uh, amazing storytellers and then figure out how we can get them to Audible, you know, and, and, and that's everything from the business affairs, commercial discussions of what that looks like to helping them cast and, and run a team of, of, of casting directors who will put people in talent into projects. Um, and then, you know, all the way through the partnership team, which is helping them be successful once they've decided to work with us and then all the way out, uh, out the door. And so, um, you know, for me, I get to spend my days uh, meeting with talent uh, from a wide spectrum of life, from Hollywood to, uh, you know, uh, the person down the street. And yeah. really work with a, a, a great cast of characters within Audible to really figure out if the creative, if the narrative arc, if the story uh, would be a good fit for our audience. And so right. we get to play that matchmaker role um, uh, a little bit. And, um, and, and, and we do that on a global basis. And so yeah. it's, uh, it's just really a lot of fun. 
what are the main things you're looking for? I mean, is the storyteller, the actual person, the most important thing, the content, the mix of things? Maybe, you know, if there's an area that there's not enough stories being told, what, what are you looking for? Yeah, it's it's a strong narrative arc um, uh, uh, that takes the listener on a on a journey, right? Like any other story out there. And, um, and we're, you know, we are a premium service. And so we'll work with creators on production and sound design and, you know, and all those types of things, but it all starts with telling a great story. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of our time thinking about, you know, what is the story? Who would it appeal to? Um, and, and does this person have the, 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 that, that aesthetic, that matches audibles um, in premium uh, to be able to okay. tell a story. So in some ways it's kind of like the HBO green light meeting uh, or the Netflix room where, you know, they're taking pitches. Um, we want to focus our time and attention on the, on the stories that we can do justice, right. Um, right. With our audience. And so uh, not every story is appropriate for us. Some should belong uh, in other places because of the different uh, audience demo, but right. we have a audience that, um, has been grounded in audiobooks for you know twenty some odd years, and we'll go on a seven hour journey uh, to listen to a great story, and that's unusual um, to find in this ADD world, but also on on you know on other services. And so we want to we want to sort of honor that um, that 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 audience trust that we have, and um, and and continue to provide them with other options over time, so they stay with us, and 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 creators can also find their audiences. So, I mean, Audible obviously has the world's largest selection of audiobooks, podcasts, uh, originals. So what's the fastest growing medium on the platform? Is it still audiobooks? That's kind of the, the big bucket. Uh, yeah, audiobooks is growing really fast. I mean, you know, it depends on how you define the fastest growing. I mean, podcasts are now 2.2 million podcasts. I think that's... I, think that's I know. <laughs> yeah. Everyone I think calm down, people. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's Spotify's last number. Um, okay. and, and so, you know... I think what's been interesting is to see the number of creators getting into the space, and um, and it's a, it's an amazing. We're well, kind of in the third inning of this thing, even though podcasts have been around for ten years. It goes back to the iPod, you know, and and all of that. But um, but in terms of sort of just like mass adoption and just cultural relevance, um, I feel like the last three to four years has been really the the watershed moment, and and we're now accelerating up in both in the number of new podcasts and creators. But also um, the types of content that's you know um, really sort of pioneering the format. Everything from talk to scripted you know audio to I heard you know there's the company called Dip, Dip, Dipsy which is doing uh, erotica you know and 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 telling uh, really interesting stories there. That's not going to be popular at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. God. So I just think we're at we're at a time where you know. Um, the, the path to market is actually very clear and very easy right. uh, for creators and storytellers. And so, um, you know, I think that's the thing that I'm really sort of most excited about. And then what we, what we end up doing at Audible is either looking through that IP and saying, how can we, you know, supercharge this? Um, what new IP would these creators be interested in launching? Um, maybe right. not in podcast form, but in a shorter story, you know, narrative structure. And so we get a chance to sort of just play um, in this sort of playground and, and, and just work with folks to, you know, to bring their stories to life in the best yeah. way we, we know how to. So you mentioned 2.2 million podcasts or whatever, which is obviously going to grow. Yeah. Do you think, or do you know of any voices or perspectives that are, you think are missing even nowadays, or is everything kind of oversaturated at this point? 
Um, I no, I think I think the market is still pretty wide open. I mean, you know, there is no shortage of demand for health and wellness, financial literacy, business and sports in the main genres of things. Um, I think what's really interesting is is that podcasts and and most of the podcasts have been largely an, an Anglo Western um, you know type of uh, phenomenon and. And, and yes, podcasts are really popular in, you know, uh, parts of Eastern Europe and in Asia. But, you know, where is the Joe Rogan of India, you know, and uh, or South Korea or or, or I swear or to God, if it's Shah Rukh Khan, I'm going to just lose my <laughs> mind. Cause I'm like, you've got enough, buddy. You can move yeah. on. <laughs> but you know, there's just there's just huge potential um, for new entrants in the space. And right. um, but it all comes back to the content and, and whether or not it has sort of enough um, uh, general um, uh, receptivity and commercial value uh, to attract a large audience, right? And, yeah. and so Rogan have found, has found that with his three-hour deep dive, you know, interview style storytelling uh, and conversation. And, and, and I think that there will be many other formats, you know, out there. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see what, you know, comes out of uh, the subcontinent. And I wanted to ask you, you know, this industry is so massive and changing, how do you in particular continue to learn in order to, how do you stay on top of everything? There's so much yeah. going on. Like, do you just, are you always reading articles? Like, how do you keep up? Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, you know, I go on my, I go on my Twitter, uh, you know, deep dives, uh, my rabbit holes on Twitter quite a bit, but I, you know, I, I, I learn by talking and doing. Um, and, and so for me, spending time with creators, spending time with my counterparts at other services, spending time with the creative community in general um, has been probably the best learning lesson so far um, because you get to hear directly from the principals about what's working and what's not working. Um, and then I try and come back and talk to, with my teams and really try and figure out how we can just kind of put one step in front of the other. You know, if we hear there's a monetization right. problem, let's go think about what we can do, you know, on that side. If there's a search and discovery problem, how do we do with that? And so, you know, we can learn from others and others' experiences. And, and I try to focus that, my Twitter research on that, as opposed to the, the constant stream of, of, of Tesla memes or, or Elon Musk memes. Um, and, oh and, and just, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, I would probably say, you know, industry events are probably the other, you know, sort of big uh, opportunity to sort of just meet and connect. But, right. um, the, but the best learning opportunities are just usually from your, your connected and, and, and extended networks, you know, along right. the way. Yeah. Okay. One last serious question before I ask you a few of the fast round. Okay. I guess, I guess right now, what are, what's the biggest area you're most curious about or what are you researching the most at this moment? Is there anything that hasn't come out yet or that you guys are thinking about that you're trying to look into or research or maybe can't talk about it? I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't talk about some of the stuff we're doing at work, but uh, personally, I'm, I'm really excited about the NFT movement. Um, I think a lot, I think a lot of people are. And, um, and I'm really starting to really, I want to really understand what the actual ownership structure is. Like if I own an NFT for Beeple, for example, um, and, and I bought that $69 million, you know, um, uh, NFT, uh, of that, of that artistic work, do I now have the rights to go and print t-shirts? Um, do I have the rights to go create postcards of, of all that stuff? Or is it really just that one metadata in, embedded, you know, uh, screenshot? That's, I mean, that's kind that's of what interesting. it is. You know, Can you like, figure all this out for me and then come yeah. back and talk about it? Because I'm very confused. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, that, 
you know, my answer in this area is it stems from rights because as I, I work in this area. And, and so for me, like there's all kinds of rights questions around NFTs that I'm, that I'm sort of fascinated by. And I'd like to really understand because if, if it, if it is actually like all rights associated with it, even for derivatives and reproductions and, 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 and all kinds of other things, then uh, it may be worth $69 million. Like who knows, you know, no but, kidding. but if it's just a screenshot, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, it's, uh, it's gonna be really interesting to see how this whole area of, I mean, you're a lawyer, so you'll know. But, um, yeah, as you can tell, I paid a lot of attention, and um, <laughs> and I practiced for two. I practiced for two and a half years, and then we moved to India for my husband's job. Right. And so that was, so my parents were like, so we paid for three years of law school. You did nothing, and I was like, I got married to a Brahmin. <laughs> Done. What else do you need? <laughs> what else do you want? And he went to Harvard, like. Done. That's your, that's where your money went. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, my parents still stress out about me. It's totally fine. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> All right. First, first thing you can think of. Okay. What is the best compliment you've ever received? Um, I have a nice sense of humor. You do laugh at my jokes, and so I feel like that is totally right. I, I'm <laughs> I'm down with that. How would your parents describe what you do for a living? He works in music. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what they would say <laughs> i love indian parents versions of things they're just like something they're doing yeah. something it's fine right yeah finance music something finance music <laughs> married it's it's fine none right <laughs> if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive who would it be and why uh so i'd love to have dinner with bill clinton love to have dinner with elon musk um and probably have dinner with Deepak Chopra and, and, and three different types of folks. Um, And I think that you can learn. uh, I think I wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be a dinner. I would just sit there and listen for, you know, for like two hours, because I think these people are um, just incredible thinkers and, and, and tinkerers and, and just have a real wide view of knowledge and and just a, a vast sense of knowledge. Um, that it would just be a very entertaining and, and, and illuminating conversation. And so I would just love to listen and learn. And there would be a lot of questions I'd want to ask too. Yeah. yeah. There's a, lo- <laughs> lo- a lot of questions for, yeah, for all three of them yes, actually. But... Yes. What would you pick for your last meal? Anything Mexican. I'm just a sucker for Mexican food. Fajitas with a little bit of Serrano maybe. Okay, now I'm hungry. I'm fasting right now, so thanks. Oh, you for are. That. Oh, yeah, sorry about thanks. that. Yeah, I'm doing this stupid prolon fast thing. <laughs> I'm very angry. I'm very angry about it right now. I'm <laughs> hangry. You do sound angry. <laughs> yeah, I was like angrily munching on celery last night. My husband was like, "Stop doing this." I'm like, "It's fine. It's fine." I have to wear a sari next month for a wedding. So okay, it's, it's there you great. go. It's worth it. There you go. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? My own billboard. Um. My own billboard. I think it would be, it would be a billboard to raise money for the food shelters in Los Angeles. Um, I think that's what I would probably do at this point. Um, I think the the chronic homeless homelessness problem nationwide, but at least you know, especially in LA, I think is is pretty severe, and no one seems to be doing anything except for these food shelters who spend and who you take in a dollar and put out a dollar ten. I think you know, in in food supplies for people. Um, so I think they're just doing a fantastic job. I've supported them personally uh, for years, um, and they 
there's just no shortage of demand. And so until we find big institutional solutions, um, this is the this is the one where you an ordinary person can help every day. And there's a food shelter in every town. Okay, that's a great billboard. I was gonna say I was gonna put my face. Uh, and interject the cure in the background and pretend I was part oh. of a band and just and just say live somewhere and just oh yeah okay. yeah so mine was very useful mine yeah mine that's, mine, no, mine, mine gives back to society a little bit that's so, yeah. good actually that reminds yeah a friend of mine who lives in the Houston area uh, told me about a, a, a billboard he saw and it was two attorneys. And it was called the Crash Money Team, and that these guys were like, you know, they, they like they were like the ambulance chasers, right? Like they're they're the guys who like go and help you if you get in a car wreck. And it's the Crash Money Team. It's just two dudes, and I'm just like, that is brilliant. Like I think this it's is the, the the best billboard of all time. Yeah, the Crash Money Team. Yeah, I just wanted. I've always wanted to be in a band, but I have zero talent. So I'm like, how can I do this before I die? And just <laughs> you just gotta fake it, you know. Um, what is something people misunderstand about you? I think people think that like things just comes easy for me because I'm a pretty, I mean, I have a smile on my face most of the time. I like to like cut it up and, you know, and have a good time. But underneath, I, I, I'm a pretty hard worker, you know, pretty ambitious, uh, like everyone else. And I think that people from the exterior who don't know me that well, or, um, or may see my success in some, in some way, uh, think it comes really easy and it's it, and nothing in life comes easy you know it's all yeah. hard work um, and so I think that's probably the one thing that uh, some people probably see that's a good one you do and then finally okay, so I grew up pretending to be a break dancer because I could do oh. two moves you can ask Jirag about this okay um, I, I did two or three moves where it was enough to get away with break dancing but not really. So people still think I'm they call me oh that's Tucker the break dancer yeah um, and now I'm fully admitting it now in public uh, when the world opens up at some point, are you ready to have a dance off? Oh yeah, I love dancing. Okay. Oh yeah, okay. and and All like right. you, I actually did uh, break dancing when I was a kid too. Ever since, <laughs> ever since Electric Boogaloo came out, came out, um, I I like I think I literally told my mom I wanted to go learn how to break dance, and she enrolled me in a class. And I can do like that, like wave thing, you know, still thing you now. Can? Yeah, that's about what? it. Though. I can't I can't do anything. But uh, but but I took break dancing uh, classes when I was a kid. And and was pretty good at, at, at one point, and then. Okay, wait. You know. Now I might not want to do a dance off because every, all my other guests are like, "You can break dance," and I'm like, "Yeah." You're the first person who was like, "I took a class, motherfucker." Like I can do it. <laughs> I'm like, um. Uh, okay, I, well, I was ten years old. Okay, so let's not get crazy. But uh, still, one or two, one or two of your bones can do it. Yeah. Um, Pat, that is it, my friend. I, I tell your wife I'm sorry. I will make it up to her because I feel like we're going to be friends and we'll have drinks. And yes, um, that's it. It was awesome. So I feel like that interview slash Tuckered Out with Ami Tucker should totally be on Audible and they should totally sponsor me. Went super well. What do you guys think? Um, all joking aside, Pat was awesome. What a great guest. In case you haven't heard of Audible, it is a membership service that provides customers with the world's largest selection of audiobooks as well as podcasts exclusive originals, and more. So check it out. Again, uh, owned by a small company called Amazon. So you know how to get there. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram, my website, which is nice and pretty, Tuckered Out with Ami. Keep on listening. Lots more to come this month. Thank you, guys. This is Tuckered Out. <laughs>